Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verses 1 through 5 and 31 through 35. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me. Listen, I am casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your words this morning. And we ask that as we listen to them and as we reflect on them, that your spirit would live within us so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. It's fascinating to me to see the threats against Jesus' life juxtaposed with the kind of arbitrary violence that defined life in first century Israel. On the one hand, we're presented with a glimpse at the violence that was inflicted on religious zealots. The Galileans, whose blood was mingled with their sacrifice, were very likely part of a faction that fiercely resisted Roman occupation in an attempt to preserve their way of life. Eventually, it was the conflict between this faction and the Roman Empire that would lead to the destruction of the Second Temple and a new diaspora of Jews around the Mediterranean. On the other hand, we see the kind of routine violence that befell the laborers of the day. In what was apparently just an accident, 18 people died when part of a tower collapsed on top of them. Death, as Jesus points out, is never far away. It doesn't matter if we're the most zealous defender of the faith and of what we perceive as our way of life, or if we're the most unassuming individual trying to keep our head down so we can just get through the day. 
Eventually, everyone meets their death, and the only choice we have in the matter is how we live in the meantime. The remedy that Jesus puts forward for the certainty of death is to repent, or to put that in more plain English, to turn toward God. Unless you will repent, you will all perish just as they did, says Christ. So is he saying that if we repent, then we can avoid death altogether? Not likely. The Gospel of Luke is pretty matter-of-fact about the idea that everyone, even Christ, eventually dies. The difference between the way that the unrepentant perish compared to the repentant must mean something else. It must be connected to this idea of resurrection. Later in the gospel, Christ tells his followers that those who try to save their life will lose it. The repentant, therefore, must be those who no longer seek to save their life, but are radically devoted to the service of God. To those souls, the promise of rebirth is made in this life and for eternity. One of the things that I've been doing for Lent is making more time to read. So far, I've slowly been working my way through the interior castle by St. Teresa of Avila. Teresa was a Spanish mystic who lived and wrote during the 16th century, and near the beginning of this work, she discusses why it is important for us to be repentant by describing the difference between a soul that is open to God and a soul that is shut off to God. This is how she describes the difference in those souls. For just as all the streams that flow from a crystal clear fount are also clear, the works of a soul in grace, because they proceed from this fount of life in which the soul is planted like a tree, are most pleasing in the eyes of both God and man. There would be no freshness, no fruit, if it weren't for this fount sustaining the tree, preventing it from drying up and causing it to produce good fruit. Thus, in the case of a soul that through its own fault withdraws from this fount and plants itself in a place where the water is black and foul-smelling, everything that flows from it is equally wretched and filthy. In short, when we let God sustain us, we're able to grow into something beautiful, but when we insist on substituting the ways of the world for the ways of God, we shrivel up and die. So what to call us to repentance over? I could talk about the shooting that happened in Christchurch, but it's easy for us to say that we didn't pull the trigger. I could talk about the nationalism, Islamophobia, and white supremacy that motivated the attack, but it's easy for us to say that we aren't members of the Klan or neo-Nazis or even of the alt-right. I could talk about the evils of our economic system, but it's easy for us to say that we aren't the millionaires and billionaires who most benefit from the way that our system steals wealth and labor. I could talk about the evils of for-profit health care, but it's easy for us to say that we aren't the ones who've denied someone treatment or medicine that they couldn't afford. So instead, I want to talk about something that we're all guilty of, silence and inaction. Every single one of us at some point in our life has witnessed an injustice and not said something. Every single one of us lives in a sinful society 
and have made decisions at some point to not act to change it. We might not have pulled a trigger. We might not have stolen the wealth of the working class. We might not have denied someone life-saving treatment. But if we fail to speak out and act against these evils, we are just as guilty for the death and suffering caused as if we had. We cannot sit silent in the face of injustice and think that we are neutral observers. Few things in life are a zero-sum game, but justice is one of those things. We are either on the side of justice or we are on the side of the oppressor, the murderer, and the thief. I know that it's difficult for us to repent of the systems and the ideas that shape the world we live in. It can feel as though we are being personally attacked when someone calls into question the systems in which we have been taught to have faith. But if we close our eyes and cover our ears so that we don't have to admit our complicity, then we make the intentional decision to further the distance between ourselves and the kingdom of God. And it's easy for us to justify knee-jerk reactions because that's the prevailing attitude of our society. We've become so polarized that we are unable to hear any criticism of our worldview. We become so confident in our own truths that we make an idol out of our beliefs. And even when public pressure does force someone to admit wrongdoing, our apologies are often nothing more than hollow theater. We say what needs to be said to cause the controversy to die down, and we go right back to the behaviors and the beliefs that caused us to harm others in the first place. There are even some who distort God's grace to cover up their bad behavior. They say, well, it's not our place to judge because judgment is reserved for God alone, or I believe in a forgiving God, so who are we to hold someone's damaging behavior against them? But living in community requires that we have some basic level of accountability for the damage that we do to each other. The favor of forgiveness, the granting of grace, requires a repentant heart. And repentance that is not accompanied by changed behavior is no repentance at all. The Apostle Paul had to contend with these very same ideas. There were those in the early church who believed that because God's grace is available to all, they had no need to discontinue their sinful behavior. Some even went so far as to say that the more that they continued in sin, the greater they proved God's love by God's ability to forgive even the gravest sins. So again, I turn to St. Teresa to explain how flawed this thinking is. She writes, What can we do for a God so generous that he died for us, created us, and gives us being? Shouldn't we consider ourselves lucky to be able to repay something of what we owe him for his service toward us? I say these words, his service toward us unwillingly, but the fact is that he did nothing else but serve us all the time he lived in this world. And yet we ask him again for favors and gifts. The point that she drives home is that we ought to be grateful to God for all that we already have, and yet, instead of responding to grace with gratitude, there are many who respond with a sense of entitlement. These are the people who say, Okay, God, your grace might have helped me realize my sacred worth. 
and it might have helped me escape some of my anxieties. But if you really do love me, then prove it by granting me wealth. Prove it by taking away my sickness. Prove it, prove it, prove it. But the proof of God's love for us is not found in any material thing. The proof of God's love is in the perfecting of our hearts to walk in the ways of the Lord. St. Teresa tells us that for perfection as well as its reward does not consist in spiritual delights, but in greater love and in deeds done with greater justice and truth. The reward of God's grace is the freedom to act according to the will of God, no matter the cost or the consequences. God's grace, the power and presence of God, empowers us to act with courage and justice. Therefore, when we feel the assurance of God's love in our heart, we are able to follow the model of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is warned of his death but is not afraid. He knows that death is coming soon, but in the meantime, he will keep acting with justice and truth. He doesn't deny that death comes for him. He simply says, I still have today to do God's work, and I have tomorrow and the day after. Well, we don't have the benefit of knowing how many days we have left. We don't have a promise to see the end of the day that we're living now. We don't have a promise to see the end of the hour that we're living now. We have this moment and nothing more to act with justice, to speak out against the evils of this world. Now is the time of your salvation. Now is the moment for you to accept God's power and presence in your lives. Now is the time to act with mercy, with courage, with justice. Now is the time to experience the resurrection of Christ through the act of repentance. Amen. Please pray with me. God of justice, break down the walls around our hearts. Tear down the barriers of our, our minds. Rebuild us in your image. Craft us so that we can walk in your ways. Free us for joyful obedience. Amen. <laughs>